o'clock. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Me. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 19th, 2016. <clears throat> Tonight we have author David Dan, the author of a new book called Chain of Title, which six days ago won the Studs Terkel Prize. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. Without those donations, we wouldn't be able to do nearly as much as we do. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our main number 202-838-NEIL, N-E-I-L, which is 6345. That's 202-838-6345. If this show and our work on the blog has any value for you, then please consider making a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. David Dayan is a contributing writer to Salon.com and a frequent contributor to The Intercept, The New Republic, Naked Capitalism, and The Fiscal Times. And he has been a contributor to one of my favorite shows, Vice, produced by Bill Mayer and others. Based in California, he came to Florida to conduct an investigation into mortgages and foreclosures. His new prize-winning book, Chain of Title, which I strongly urge you to buy and read and get others to do the same, probes the depths of corruption on Wall Street and how it plays out on Main Street in millions of foreclosures wrecking tens of millions of lives that I have, I've said from the beginning, those foreclosures should never have been allowed. You can get it on Amazon and you can see the, the reviews yourself. This is an important book and David is now an important writer. He was good before, he's important now. <laughs> David builds on the on the work of other authors by drilling down to the truth behind the truth. His book will no doubt be regarded as as a centerpiece for further writing and analysis. It is history, 
and it is important in my opinion. Yesterday he wrote an article for The Intercept where he gives concrete examples of the fraudulent conduct that is committed every day by when the banks go to court or start a non-judicial foreclosure. I put the link at the bottom of my article today uh, about the California decision in the appeals court that expands on the obvious fact that there is no such thing as a unilateral contract. You must owe somebody, and that somebody needs to show up. You can't just owe anybody. And the California Supreme Court, and now uh, it's Fourth District Appellate Court, apparently has gotten that point. The old theories of the judges that it doesn't make any difference who you owe is being torn to shreds as the courts are waking up to the fact that they have created the groundwork for epic fraud. David, congratulations on your prize-winning book, and welcome to our show. I'm honored to have you here. Well, it's it's great to be here, and uh, as I was telling you just before, uh, uh, you know, the the work and that I documented in this book uh, really started on your website way back in 2009. Yes, I've been writing that long on it. <laughs> <laughs> you came so. to this subject without going through foreclosure yourself, though, and that kind of distinguishes you from many people. Um, yeah. What, motiv- what motiv- motivated you to investigate the murky world of mortgage loans and foreclosures? Sure. Well, um, you know, I guess it goes back to sometime in 2010. I do come from a sand state, uh, from California, and uh, I had friends that were involved in uh, loans that they were getting caught up in and, and couldn't pay back. And uh, I got a call one day from a friend of mine who was a pretty diehard uh, Barack Obama supporter, went to Nevada to knock on doors with him in 2008 or for him. And uh, he asked me the question point blank, how come uh, the president's mortgage program, he was talking about HAMP, uh, how come it makes your financial situation worse? And I said, well, what are you talking about? And at that time, I was writing for a website called FireDogLake.com, uh, which is no longer with us, but uh, it was a political blog, progressive political blog, and I was doing news stories for them. And he told me about this HAMP story that he had, which was really quite horrible. It was a loan modification fraud story. And uh, I pursued that, and, and as you know, if you talk about foreclosures or loan modification scams or anything online, uh, you start getting stories. So I started getting a lot of stories from people. Uh, I posted them at, at my website at that time. And it was around that time that the Jeffrey Stefan story broke and the Beth Cottrell story broke. And, and and the uh, mortgage servicing companies started to put a pause in their foreclosure operations. And so I, I naturally sort of moved over and got interested in that, went from you know, talking about HAMP to talking about this larger issue of, of bad documentation. And I was invited to a, a out in Washington kind of a meeting with a bunch of people who were involved in this issue and trying to figure out next steps. And at that meeting was Lisa Epstein and, and, and Michael Redman and, and Lynn Simoniak. 
And so that was the first time I met them, and they became, you know, sources of mine, pe- people I would uh, look to, along with looking to your site, uh, to, to look for more information about this. I, as you said, did not go through this myself. I knew people who did, uh, and I certainly recognized the value of it as an important story about the aftermath of the financial crisis. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is that most of the financial crisis narratives, and there have been hundreds of them that have been written, uh, they attack it from a 10,000-foot level. They talk about bank CEOs, they talk about uh, the Treasury Secretary or top regulatory officials, and they look at it from that perspective. I really wanted to look at it from the perspective of people on the ground, people who were most powerfully affected by the forces of the financial crisis, and that's homeowners. And I particularly wanted to look at homeowners who actually fought back, which, as you know, are a rarity. I mean, uh, maybe 95% of of all foreclosure cases aren't contested, by and large. Uh, So I wanted to look at people who fought back, and uh, it turned out that Lisa and her colleagues had this incredible story about, you know, going from being in foreclosure to investigating foreclosures, and not just their own, but foreclosures all over the country, and finding this massive fraud uh, with your help, and, uh, you know, figuring it out and trying to expose it to the nation, and then what happened next. And I just thought it was a really compelling, dramatic story, and, and I, I, I wanted to tell it sort of as a reminder to people of, of what happened and what continues to happen. That's that's an interesting history of, of how you got into this. Um, can you give us some examples of things that shocked you the most and motivated you more to get further to drill down further into this? Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, at at the at the ground level, what what we know that we saw, we saw these incredibly fraudulent documents, things that were submitted without signatures at all, things that were submitted, uh, you know, where the effective date was not plugged in. So it says that the mortgage assignment was executed on September 9th, 1999, or 9,999. There were mortgages where the uh, name of the assignee was not signed in, and the placeholder literally said bogus assignee. Uh, We know about all those fraudulent documents and, and, and how how stark it really was. Uh, at one point, uh, Michael Redman looked on a hunch at uh, the president, uh, President Obama's uh, mortgage release, and found it was signed by a known robo-signer. So uh, this was just a systemic situation. Uh, what, what I uh, was, I guess, shocked by is the degree to which the industry fought back against Lisa and Michael and Lynn in ways that uh, kind of call up uh, conspiracy theories, but it, but it was absolutely true. Um, they talk about being surveilled, having having clicks on the line when they were talking to one another or talking to government officials. They talk about uh, you know Lynn having her car broken into on her driveway. Uh, they talk about uh, various other forms of surveillance. There's a key moment in the story before Lynn had ever uh, issued a lawsuit uh, of any kind. She was talking to uh, regulatory officials. She was on a plane, and the person next to her on the plane says to her, 
you know what happens to people who sue banks. They wind up dead. And at that time, there was no way of anyone knowing that Lynn Simoniak was even preparing to sue a bank because nothing was public. Uh, it's, now, it's just to very... piggyback on David, just to piggyback yeah. on that, I will uh-huh. reveal for yeah. the time to our listening audience that all of those things happened to me in 2008 and continued going forward. Right. And and that's what I learned is that talking to foreclosure defense attorneys that had their their offices ransacked, that there was this low-level surveillance that was going on uh, that, you know, in some ways helped uh, it, it contributed to turning or it attempted to turn these activists against one another. There's this very amusing story in the book where uh, Lisa receives something in the mail addressed to Michael, and she d- has no idea what it is. It's some sort of contraption, and she immediately suspects that this is a bomb or, or a, uh, some sort of device of some sort. And when she confronts Michael about it, he says, no, that's a, that's a, it was a fuel injection uh, part of, a, it was for an engine of his car, and he wasn't actually living, he was living sort of transiently at that time, and so he, he told Lisa he was going to address this to her, and she didn't remember it. And so it was like, uh, you know, in, in the 70s, they had this thing called COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program, which was designed to set people in the movement, the anti-war movement in this case, against one another. Uh, to suspect one another and to to create this this air of suspicion and and that ended up happening uh, with these foreclosure activists uh, in a way that I thought was uh, really revealing. What uh, what was it that I mean you're based in California so yeah I know that you spent time in Florida. What brought you to Florida instead of just staying in California where? Um, I think California led the country in terms of the number of total foreclosures. We did. But uh, when I was telling the history of this crisis and this particular scandal, the foreclosure fraud scandal, you had to go to Florida. And uh, I think one reason for that is that Florida of the four sand states is the only one that's a judicial foreclosure state. And so it was just easier to find these fraudulent documents because they came up in these court cases. Uh, and I think that is what facilitated the fact that so many uh, foreclosure defense strategies and uh, so many activists congregated in Florida, whether you're talking about Tom Ice or you're talking about Matt Widener or April Charney. Uh, there was a lot of activity and a lot of the depositions that ultimately uh, uh, exposed foreclosure fraud for a brief time to the nation in uh, the end of 2010 really came out of people who were doing the work in Florida. So that was really ground zero for this. And that's why I thought it was important to cite the story in Florida and to tell the story of these activists who were from Florida. They were really at the vanguard, and yourself, of course, as well. Um, How is your relationship now with Lisa and Michael and Lynn? Uh, They're all pretty happy with the book. They have thanked me. Uh, I, I hope to get to Florida. We're trying to set up something for the fall and uh, to do something in, in both in Miami and then probably something in the West Palm Beach area. So I, I hope to be 
back in Florida this uh, this fall. Uh, it's interesting that the uh, the the area in which they they all live, the West Palm Beach area, is an, an area where my parents, who are snowbirds, go down to every year. Uh, so when I did a lot of the research, I stayed with my parents <laughs> and uh, did the research on the book. So my 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 budget on this book was about $15 in terms of the money that was spent <laughs> in Florida because I had mom and dad uh, feeding me every night and keeping a roof over my head. Uh, I have some family down in uh, in that part of the, the country as well, some aunts and uncles and stuff. Oh, okay. So the big question, and it's it's obvious in the political campaign going on now with the presidential thing, mm-hmm is, you know, how did government fail so many people in so many ways all at the same time? And the specific question is, why did, well, the usual question right now is, why did Obama, but I would say, why did Bush and Obama refuse to use their legal leverage to help millions of citizens who were, in fact, victimized by Wall Street crime. That is, in fact, the key question. And uh, the preface of the book, my first line uh, in the book is, there is a rot at the heart of our democracy. And the rot is this nagging question of why nobody went to jail and why those that leverage was not ultimately used. Uh, there were people in the government that wanted to use it. One thing I, I, I break in the book is uh, the fact that Sheila Baer, who was the chairwoman of the FDIC, when the uh, robo-signing scandal really hit, she authored a proposal, put it right on Tim Geithner's desk, that said we need to do a super mod, write everybody over 60 days delinquent down to face value, uh, do a shared appreciation with the with the banks on the on the back end, which you know that's you you can debate that, but uh, it was a real proposal to really provide legitimate relief and long lasting relief to homeowners, and it was never acted upon. Uh, nor I'm was t- I'm yeah. told that when Sheila made that proposal, there was a fight of epic proportions. <laughs> Uh, that almost came to blows, and the end result was she, you know, you know how people get fired in government, they submit their resignation. Right. Uh, yeah, but, she was not she was not around much longer after that, it is true. I mean, maybe about, maybe about a year uh, after that, and she was gone. So, um, you know, it, whether that or not that played a role, uh, put that aside, the fact is it, it it didn't happen. And even though the proposal was right there, uh, similarly, there was enough evidence, millions of pieces of documentary evidence uh, to go up the chain from who created the documents to who authorized the creation for the documents to who asked for the creation of the documents. And that would have infected every executive suite in every uh, major bank on Wall Street. There's no question about it. Uh, And there was an active uh, grand jury investigation in Jacksonville, Florida, that was triggered by Lynn Simoniak, that was put together uh, by the U.S. attorney and the FBI there. 
And uh, I ended up coming into possession of some uh, documents from the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act, and that was a serious investigation. That, that had dozens of FBI agents. Uh, it had support from FBI headquarters in, in Washington, D.C., uh, the participation of several offices. Uh, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of people subpoenaed and interviewed in that case, and it led to exactly one conviction. And that conviction was of Lorraine Brown, who was the CEO of DocX, one of these third-party document processors that uh, created uh, uh, millions of, of false mortgage assignments. And in the charging of Lorraine Brown, it said that she created those documents, quote, unbeknownst to DocX's clients. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, these banks were asking for documents to prove standing in foreclosure cases, but they just didn't know that Lorraine Brown was going to fake them and fabricate them. Uh, it's it's an absurd situation. She was she was she was you know she was uh, arrested and indicted and convicted for conspiracy, but apparently, according to the charging documents, it was a conspiracy of one. It's just absolutely so absurd. So the prosecutor was lying to contain the problem and protect the banks. Well, uh, they were certainly minimizing the scope. There's no question about it. And uh, and whether that was done at the behest of Maine Justice, of the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., uh, I strongly suspect that it was. I strongly suspect that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney in Jacksonville are honorable people who would have followed that trail wherever it led and indeed did try to follow that trail, but they were stonewalled from the top. And ultimately what we got from the top was a settlement that isn't worth the paper it's printed on. It All it does is create a bunch of headline numbers that people can tout in press releases and future political campaigns, but uh, it provided next to no real relief for millions of homeowners who were suffering. And in fact, because more short sales were done as a result of the national mortgage settlement than any principal reductions, I would argue that more people lost their homes in transactions in the national mortgage settlement than ever got uh, uh, relief to save them. I, I think that's 100% uh, correct. My, uh, I don't conduct formal surveys, scientific ones, but the anecdotal evidence is enormous uh, in terms of supporting what you just said. Right. I mean, uh, I did. I, what I did do, Neil, is I went to uh, the final documents that were or distributed to the oversight monitor of the National Mortgage Settlement. They had to uh, basically list out what they got credit for in the settlement uh, and what they did. And even though Sean Donovan, who was the head of the Housing and Urban Development Department at the time, promised one million mortgage uh, principal reductions as a result of the settlement, when you look through the documents and really uh, look at how many were done, if you're talking about first lien principal reductions, not second liens that were worthless anyway, if you're talking about first lien principal reductions, it's 80000 so that's over 90% less than what uh, Sean Donovan promised. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the entire thing was predicated on something that I think started happening 30, 40 years ago where the average working person 
came to be regarded as basically uh, unimportant Mm -hmm. instead of, uh, and that produced the attack on organized labor and all the things that made it possible for corporate America to, over time and using inflation against the worker, to replace real earnings with debt. Right. And Absolutely. And today, one of my observations is that people are much more concerned with their credit score than they are with how much money they have in a savings account, which probably doesn't exist, which means that they're more interested in what they can borrow than in what they can earn or save. We definitely put the country on a path to be a debt peonage society rather than uh, a society that has broadly shared prosperity. And when you get caught up in debt, it's dangerous instruments, especially when that debt is being manipulated and the risk is being uh, allegedly shifted to investors all over the globe, and then underwriting standards are thrown out the window. And, uh, and then on the back end, when the processes are not done properly, uh, the bank balance sheets are favored uh, or, or preferenced over the balance sheets of homeowners. And that's certainly what we saw. And it was a major impediment to this economy uh, in terms of the recovery. Uh, there's some groundbreaking research that was done by uh, professors out of the University of Chicago and Princeton University. Uh, and they wrote a book called House of Debt. And it shows that in these highly depressed areas with a lot of foreclosures, the economy came back slower because they were concerned about their own uh, homeowners and people in those communities were concerned about their own balance sheets and weren't spending. And uh, consumer spending makes up two-thirds of economic activity. So uh, it was just axiomatic that if you don't remove this lead weight on the economy in the form of a debt overhang, you're going to have a worse economic performance. And that's an, exactly what happened. And I would say that this failure to deal with this crime wave in terms of false documents and to really have better outcomes for homeowners is, is a, a major part of President Obama's legacy, sadly enough. You can't tell the story of President Obama without telling this story. I, I agree. The The other question that I really wanted to get your take on mm-hmm. is at, especially at this point. I mean, it was one thing when I started writing about this in 2007 when everybody thought I was just a lunatic and I was a lone voice in the wilderness. But today we know that the documents are fraudulent, that they're fabricated, that they're forged, that they're robo-signed. Yep. We know that the the money trail was not what securitization was supposed to be, and the banks basically stole the money from the trust that was supposed to get it. We know all these things, and we know that there are good defenses for virtually every foreclosure that's coming up. And yet, as you pointed out, and my observation anecdotally is the same, and I might add, a little bit of securities analysis helped me corroborate what I'm about to say, that basically 96% of the people who are who find themselves 
in what they think is a jam will not only leave their keys on the kitchen counter, but they'll clean the house so that nobody <laughs> will think worse of them. Right. My question, my question to you is, is this apathy or is this shame or is this the inability to find a lawyer or is it something else? Right. I mean, I think you put you pinpoint it when you talk about shame. And I think this is something that the, the banking industry really benefits from. And it was uh, at the heart of uh, a lot of what I wrote about in the book is that banks rely on, on two things in, in these situations, and it's isolation and shame. Uh, it's, it's instead of considering this as a systemic problem triggered by the lender, it's seen as an individual problem triggered by the borrower. And uh, people don't talk about their foreclosure cases. People are humiliated by the fact that they miss mortgage payments and they might have to lose their homes. And so they turn inward and they think it's something that they did. They think it's their problem to solve rather than a, a, a global and systemic problem. That's why, you know, I followed these three people because they fought that. They, they decided not to be cowed by isolation and shame. And they actually committed the revolutionary act, as, as you and the people that uh, frequent your rep website commit, which is to read the documents and actually find uh, what's wrong with them. And they didn't only uh, use that information to fight their own cases, but they used it to try to build a community to create that more welcoming space so that people could be confident that it wasn't something they did, that it was uh, uh, something that, that could be fought. And now, you know, they, they got as far as they did, and it was, it was remarkable what they did and what you, you continue to do. But uh, the fact is it's a big country out there, and a lot of people still don't have this information. And the, the kind of overarching... Uh, view that is still taken of people in foreclosure is that they're deadbeats. And uh, that affects not only uh, the mentality that is sort of drummed into our heads and it affects people at the homeowner level, but it also affects the judges. And uh, you, you, you see situations where judges uh, know what the law is and know what the facts are and, and know that, that there is false evidence being presented in their courtroom, but they don't want to go the extra mile if they will, uh, quote, unquote, give a free home uh, on a technicality, which, you know, what is the law but a technicality? It's a series of technicalities. It's rules we have to follow. Um, so, you know, there was this... Uh, ice you had to break through, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, of, of getting the judges to understand that this isn't about free houses. This is about the integrity of the judicial experience. And so it's a combination of that, and, and, and the, the facts are that the judge looks at the nice guy in the suit in, in, uh, in front of the, the, the bank, uh, representing the bank and the bank lawyer, and they look at the homeowner who you know, doesn't have a lot of resources, and they think that one guy is in their social class and the other guy isn't. Uh, so I think that's an uh, aspect of it. But, uh, you know, and then you touch on the, the last thing, which is that if people had the money and resources 
to go after the most powerful institutions in this country repeatedly, they probably wouldn't be in foreclosure. And so that's why we need guardians. That's why you need people at the uh, law enforcement level, at the top officials in this country, to act on the behalf of all citizens, because we, with that, that is what essentially our tax dollars pay for. And we need uh, strong attorneys general willing to root out fraud and crime. And they weren't willing to do it in this case. Right, because they went to the thieves and asked their advice on what they should do. And the thieves told <laughs> exactly. them to do anything. You know, it's interesting it's interesting that you brought up class. There's a lot more being written about that now and how it directly impacts results. Mm-hmm. And I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the judge looks at the lawyer in the in the fine suit in front of the bank uh, fronting for the bank and he looks at the deadbeat that's sitting across the room, and that's how he he sees that those people, he identifies that the bank the bank lawyer is in the same class as the judge, economic class, I mean social class, right. and and this person who is a deadbeat has you know they they should be thankful that they're able to be in the same room as people who are so exalted in their own opinion of themselves. Yeah, I I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I I think that led them to not want to believe that there was this systemic practice where people in their social class in the banking industry, maybe they went to school with people that became bank executives, maybe they know them socially, uh, they were not willing to believe that they were all a bunch of criminals, that they had created a practice that was polluting their courtrooms with false evidence. Uh, judges don't seem to have a problem throwing out court cases when there are instances of false evidence if it's uh, a, a bad blood sample, if it's, um, you know, just uh, a documents or, 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 or documentary evidence that was falsified by the cops. I mean, judges know that that is a no-no, that that, that, that voids a case. But in foreclosure law, it's somehow something different. If a bank can wave a piece of paper around and say, this proves that I'm the legal title holder to this mortgage and and it gives me the authority to enforce the lien, then somehow that notion uh, gets gets thrown away. And and this is, you know, it gets to a larger point about contract law in this country and, and, and property law, which was well settled. You know, the first property law in the United States was in 1636 in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It predates the Constitution by well over 100 years, 150 years. And, uh, you know, this was, in many respects, uh, there's a Peruvian economist named Hernando de Soto that says that, that well-settled property law so that when you buy or sell property, you have the confidence that nobody else has a claim on it 
is the basis of capitalism. It's, it's, it's the, the bulwark of capitalism, that uh, it's what develops, uh, it separates developed countries from undeveloped countries. And uh, this has been really tainted uh, by this entire situation, and, and judges aren't standing up for, uh, for the integrity of that centuries-old concept. Uh, and it's it's really undermining uh, the, the 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 basic rule of law in this country. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I think that with, uh, as I've written, um, I think that this entire securitization thing, which has been a sham from the start, mm-hmm. uh, because it didn't work the way it was written, or right. nor did it work the way. It, it was uh, conceived. Uh, it's been undermining the economy and putting enormous pressure on the economy, such that most people are not are are still experiencing recession, even if officially we don't have the recession anymore. Let me ask you another question. Okay. Since 2008, when everything blew. We've had a continuing practice of table funding loans where the consumer has no idea who's lending the funds or no idea who they're doing business with, which is clearly against the law on a national level and against the law in many states who have uh, uh, lending laws to protect consumers. Right. They're still doing all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly actually expanded. as they did it before. Yeah, where do it's you think it's expanded into consumer loans beyond? Uh, if I could just add this, it's expanded into consumer loans beyond uh, simply mortgage loans. Uh, I don't right. know if you are familiar with this Lending Club scandal that came out last week, but Lending Club is one of these peer-to-peer lenders that that does consumer loans, and they claim to match borrowers with lenders. Uh, through their website, but what they actually do is they create a structured note and then they sell it up the chain to uh, investment banks. And Lending Club was accused, and they actually threw their CEO out, which is more than any bank ever did, but they were accused of, uh, they were asked by one of their investment banks to increase the disclosures on their their loans, because uh, what they were actually doing is, is giving the, through the the agreement, giving power of attorney to Lending Club to even sign uh, the loans on their behalf, and that wasn't really disclosed very well. So this investment bank wanted so, some some surety, and so they they said change your disclosure. So Lending Club changes their disclosure, but they want to sell them loans. They wanted to sell loans to this investment bank that was from the, before the disclosure was changed. So they just changed the effective dates on those dis, on those loans. Which is no different than what was done in the, uh, you know, in the in the the foreclosure fraud scandal, which is the 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 deliberate changing of evidence and securitization, uh, and so and then they sent them up to Jeffries, uh, this investment bank, and Jeffries said this is uh, this is an obvious bad forgeries, and uh, it was a scandal that that is probably going to bring down this company Lending Club. Uh, they're now under multiple investigations, so. 
that's that's supposed to be the good outcome of you know uh, uh, Silicon Valley getting into the business of Wall Street, right? But uh, it's really no different, and we're obviously seeing the same things uh, within the lending space. Uh, you know, we have we have better loan products that are being sold from a mortgage standpoint now. Uh, there are some practices that are banned by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and uh, by and large. Uh, loans that have were originated uh, in the last few years have been performing pretty well. Uh, however, uh, if the if the basic uh, structure uh, remains the same, uh, then it continues to put people at risk. And I'm really worried about uh, servicing, which has been completely unreformed in my view. The compensation structures, which incentivize putting people into default and foreclosure, are exactly the same. Uh, there are a lot of these non-bank lenders that have shown themselves to be bad actors in the space, people like uh, Nation Star and, and Aquin. And uh, that's, that's where a lot of this, this, uh, the problems are coming from. And so uh, I, 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 I agree with you that, that there, there still is a, uh, this risk within the economy. All right. So a couple of minutes we have left. Take out your crystal ball and tell me what you think is going to happen as we look down the road five, ten years in terms of lending, foreclosures, and the, this fake securitization and all of that. What, well, what's your view? Uh huh. I mean, I didn't, I didn't write this book to change the world or anything. I wanted to tell this story. But, however, uh, what I would say is I wanted to highlight the fact that this continues to happen every day, that every day in America somebody is thrown out of their home based on false documents. And the media, the, uh, the governments, uh, politicians, law enforcement judges have decided to pretend that the ruination of of this centuries-old property record system just didn't happen. And the ultimate, what that ultimately means is that uh, we're going to be dealing with these problems until that cycle of loans passes through the system. And that's, that's at least 20 years down the road. Um, there's a lawyer in Florida, actually, Henry Trawick, an old, uh, old lawyer, uh, who uh, helped helped write a lot of uh, the judicial procedure, I believe, in Florida, who talks yes. about, you know, after the Depression, how it took 20 years for loans to be unwound and untangled uh, with all the problems that they had. And he sees the same thing in uh, mortgages today. And I, I think that's generally true that if we're not going to deal with this on a on a macro level that we're just going to muddle through i mean i i hope that uh people like you and people uh in the foreclosure defense movement who are really working hard uh can get some some positive rulings and there have been some uh particularly in florida recently uh but uh ultimately that's a one by one thing unless you get some sort of precedential uh, case uh, ruling up at the state Supreme Court level, uh, and it's state by state, and it's a long slog, as you know. And uh, so, if we're not going to deal with this from the top, then we're just going to 
grind through, muddle through one loan at a time uh, to the detriment of so many people who are still struggling. I mean, I get I get calls every day. I get I get letters every gotta, day from people. Yeah. Uh, Chain of Title by David Dan. Uh, available on, at Amazon. Go get the book. We will return next week. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.